Hello, members, friends, and neighbors of Peace Lutheran Church in downtown Puyallup, Washington, to episode 31 of our congregation's podcast that has begun in the time of COVID-19, Together in the Word on Pioneer and Third. I am not on Pioneer and, Pioneer and Third with my guest. I'm here, but my guest is not here. My guest is joining us over the phone, but I'm so grateful for your presence, Jacob Woodbury. Hi, Pastor Nate. It's good to be on the call with you. Uh, Jacob is a child of our congregation, as many of you know and know him well. Uh, and um, I wanted to give you a chance, Jacob, to, to uh, give us a little bit more uh, information about your, your background, but also maybe what's going on in your life right now. Thanks, Nate. So uh, I am currently a graduate student getting my PhD at WSU, where I study science education, but I grew up in Puyallup, in the church, uh, and I was drawn to science because of an experience I had with the church congregation. When I was in ninth grade, uh, uh, Dr. Pat Moore uh, had me out to the WSU research farm uh, in Puyallup, and I job shadowed him uh, studying uh, berries like they do. and. Uh, from there, I was uh, I was inspired to investigate science. Since my family's all teachers, I wanted to uh, join in that vocation, and so um, I'm currently work on how science students work in teams to uh, to learn better together. Wow, that's amazing! I love that you trace your commitment to science to an experience you had in connection with a fellow member of peace yeah it was uh it was a it was a great moment to see how people work in the real world and uh see how science and teams of scientists can can benefit the community i don't i don't study berries but i i think they're a pretty valuable contribution so i i hope to make a contribution that's just as valuable as raspberry oh phenomenal yeah well i mean gratitude to Pat and to the staff uh, for, you know, faithfully leading you in that direction. I mean, I, I think that you're speaking really profoundly to kind of our understanding of vocation in our tradition, which is that it's maybe it's internal. You kind of have a sense of your own gifts and passions, but call is also external, right? Like someone comes to you often and speaks uh, a word to you that like rings a bell. And you say, huh, yeah, I'd like to take advantage of that opportunity or yeah, I'd never thought of that or for whatever reason, it like kind of affirms you in your in your sense of vocation. And, and we need both, I guess, internal and external call. So gratitude to Pat for providing an external call to you. Yep, I think that was really important. Yeah, cool. Thanks for for sharing that with us. Um, so since this is a ministry of COVID-19, and, uh, you know, I keep track of how many weeks we've been apart as a church uh, by numbering the episodes since we, the first episode with your dad, in fact, was my first guest, uh, was that very first week that we, that we uh, were separate as a church. So I know that it's been 31 weeks um, since we've been together. And that's, of course, unprecedented in any of our lifetimes. And yet here we are trying to stay connected uh, through new ministries like this one. 
Uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your experience with COVID, if you don't mind. Uh, first of all, kind of a personal question, I guess. You know, how are you doing? Um, are you are you finding that you're able to cope? What kind of challenges have you faced, and what kind of uh, what kind of experiences? Uh, I think I'm doing okay. Uh, one challenge that I've definitely been facing is uh, in in Pullman, where I live. Uh, during uh, during school, I guess, uh, is just kind of being lonely. Pullman is way out there, and uh, it's just me and my roommate living in our apartment. And, you know, because of the quarantine, we try not to go out and see too many other people. So it's been a challenge to uh, reach out sometimes and uh, hang out with our friends over Zoom uh, or you know, uh, call my parents. Uh, I've, I've tried to take on the challenge of not feeling so alone, even though physically it's just me and my roommate in our, in our space. Yeah. Yeah. Loneliness. That's a, that's a really common theme that I've heard. Um, even, even if you have folks with whom you're sharing this time and and your little space, it, it can still feel like really disconnecting. Um, I mean, I've heard that from people even who live with families, you know, at home, that, that whole families, that it's, it's still, we still feel kind of cut off. So I'm sure your experience resonates with other people's. Um, the second question that I've been asking all of my guests is a sort of a bigger picture question about the ways that COVID-19 might be affecting our, our society or our communities and how how that might make us better. It's not always true, I suppose, that crisis brings the best out of people, but sometimes that can be true. My question to you, Jacob, is if you could cast a vision for the time after COVID-19, that if you could sort of imagine the ways that we all might learn something from this time and be better off for it, what would that vision look like? Um, I think my vision would be going forward, really recognizing the value of people working together in person in teams yeah. and the value of teams with, uh, with a single goal. Something that I really miss right now is being able to work uh, together in our lab uh, with the team of scientists uh, that I work with, um, with the team of of graduate students that are in my year pursuing our our degrees uh, and I guess like the the team of my family when we when we come together uh, from you know wherever my grandma is or my aunt is to, to have fun together and and work on our family relationship those are all things that I miss so getting together in teams and uh, and working together face to face I think is is something that I hope we value more coming out of this. I love that. I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you would use the, um, the sort of symbol of teamwork uh, to describe all the areas of your life, since that's what you study and that that's yep. your your area of expertise. But I love how you've uh, how you've broadened that definition to you know every every area that that is important in our lives. We rely uh, we rely on other people and. Um, and usually people who we care about and, and who, whose you know, 
time and whose expertise and, and insights and gifts we value. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's really been missing for me too, Jacob. Like, I, I'm really, I mean, I'm a, I'm a solo pastor here at Peace, but uh, boy, I'm really missing the opportunity to, to sit with people and, uh, and not, just, not just to shoot the breeze, although that too, but to sit with people with a common purpose, as, you, as you've said, whether that's, you know, formation in faith at a church or whether that's, um, I don't know, deliberating about the ways that we serve our community more effectively, um, gathering together for the sake of uh, advancing the movement for justice. We, we, I've done a little bit of that, but perilously and with a mask on and six feet apart from others, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's been, yeah, that's been a really, a really strange, um, again, that, that theme being, you know, sort of disconnection or isolation. And that's a bigger deal than just being, it's loneliness is a, is a major issue, but, but there are ways in which we function together as social animals that are productive and, and really meaningful. I'm missing that too. Thank you. Wow, what a what a vision. Well, I I'll, I'm going to go along with it. I'm going to go along with your vision. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks, Nate. Yeah, I uh, I I really love uh, the. I think the ways when we when we get out of this, the ways people are going to come together and and build new teams because there's been movements for social justice that have brought together new teams and movements for for science and for fighting disease that have brought together new teams. And so, um, you know, right now is maybe not the best time to form a, a team together in person, but I really like trying to find to find teams in my life and uh, put them together and, and make them go. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, the second half of our uh, podcast has usually been kind of a, a closer look at the upcoming gospel for this coming Sunday, and I really look forward to, to talking to you about um, this one that's coming up. And uh, what I'll do is I'll read the I'll read the gospel that's assigned for this Sunday, and then we'll have some conversation around the three questions that we usually use to crack open scripture in Bible study at peace. Cool. Yes. All right. This coming Sunday, our gospel comes to us from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. And show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this? And whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Um... Okay, so the, the questions that we ask, the pattern of questions is, is really not meant to like constrain our talk, but rather to open it up, right? To, to maybe give us an idea of what, where the conversation might lead. And the questions are as follows. 
first, simply what did you notice? What stands out? A word, a phrase, an image, an idea. Uh, secondly, what questions do you have about this text? The biblical text is going to raise for us many questions, some of which might be quite simple, some of which might be quite complex or difficult. Uh, and so we, you know, we, we're not afraid of those questions. So we go ahead and answer them. We, we ask them even if we don't have answers for them. And then the last, uh, last question we use uh, to study the Bible is, uh, how is this word uh, taking flesh in your life today? How is it interpreting your life? If the, the word of God is supposed to be, supposed to be living and active, uh, how is it living and acting for you today? Sound good? Got it. So maybe we start with that first one since it's the simplest. You know, you've heard this story, I'm sure, over and over again uh, in over the course of many years in your childhood and young adulthood. What, this time through, even if it's familiar to you, this time through, what stands out? Uh, I, this time when uh, reading this passage, I noticed that before Jesus speaks, he, he takes note of the motive Mm. of the the pharisees Mm -hmm. uh in my my translation the bible i have sitting in front of me it says jesus knew they were up to no good (laughs) i Uh, love that (laughs) (laughs) and uh so i think i i noticed how jesus is careful Mm -hmm. before he speaks and jesus tries to relate to the motives of the people who want to learn from him whether they're trying to trap him Mm. or or not um oh that's really insightful yeah he's really aware of process right like he he can he can look around a group or a setting and he can he sees he often sees or notices things that are really important and might not be right at the surface that's a really good point yeah he's intuitive yeah 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 i noticed how jesus was was careful in a situation that that might not be favorable to him and how he how he tried to learn from the people even who were maybe trying to attack him or to try to catch him in something that he didn't mean yeah setting is really powerful uh with regard to that observation because this is he's still this is this long section where jesus and the disciples have arrived in jerusalem and he's in the temple so he teaches all of these difficult parables and uh, you know, there's this extended section where he's in the temple. And of course, the temple is the center of the religious world for Jewish people, right, at this time. And it's this just giant facility uh, with a lot of commerce and a lot of religious activity going on, people milling around. So it's this, you know, buzzing place. So the fact that he would notice, you know, that there are there are mixed motives here. There are people here who, as you've said, are here to, to listen to me to teach to teach them or, you know, to give them some hope. And of course there are, there are, you know, crowds of people everywhere that kind of follow him over time. But then there's also this really distinct group of, they're called the Pharisees and the Herodians in this case. Sometimes we'll hear um, the Pharisees are associated with the religious scholars or the, the legal experts or, you know, in general, they, they sort of come across as like flat characters who represent opposition to Jesus. Um, and sure enough, Jesus kind of senses that their uh, their motives are um, are not necessarily pure, even though they kind of try to ask the question in a way. It's it's sort of like a, a question in bad faith, right? Like it's supposed to yeah. sound like they really want to hear what he has to say, but really there's something else going on. Yeah, that's yeah. super important. Cool. Yeah. You know, uh, funny that you should mention the Pharisees and Herodians, because what I noticed this time... 
is that you know you can get lost in some of the cultural references here but it's really important to note that the Herodians are representatives of King Herod right so they're that's those are collaborators right King Herod is a puppet king for the Roman Empire he he doesn't rule by right he rules because he's been propped up by the Roman Empire he's a Jewish king but he's basically a, a puppet for them on the other hand the Pharisees are religious elites who represent uh, the Jewish tradition and our like intention with the Roman occupation. So you wouldn't necessarily think that the Pharisees and the Herodians would like be on the same page about it, anything actually, even though they both sort of represent elites and they both, you know, are, are exercising power. What I think is so interesting, what I noticed is that if they're going to get on the same page about anything, it's going to be their opposition to Jesus, right? <laughs> like he, like yeah. he is the ultimate outsider here, even though there might be this political and religious intrigue and, and conflict between these other groups of, of you know, those who wield power. Uh, Jesus is going to be the one who like gets them on the same page. It'd be like if you had the, I don't know, the, the, uh, you know, the Freedom Caucus and like, you know, the, you know, green members of the Green Party who are in Congress. I don't know how many of them there are. Somehow get on the same page uh, to oppose somebody like that's that's what's happening here that, you know, that there's this this like um, confluence of power uh, that's intended to undermine Jesus own legitimacy. And that's amazing because he's just like a peasant rabbi, right? Like he doesn't seem to present that much of a threat. And yet somehow they sense that there's this fundamental threat to their to their power fascinating yeah i definitely agree that jesus is a threat here Sarah. yeah for sure something as important as taxes oh sure yeah oh and that's a really good point so like the question about taxes is more than what it seems right like that's the other piece uh one of the questions i have is like what are they getting at right like what are they trying to accomplish here by asking him this bad faith question and i mean one of the answers is that you know that the, so obviously tax there's like multiple layers of taxation for first century people in Palestine right like on the one hand you get taxed by Herod the the Jewish king who then turns around and like he's well known for building elaborate you know palaces and anyway he's he's fleecing the people but then you also have another layer of taxation on top of that that goes to the Romans right so you're you're getting taxed by the Romans you're getting taxed by Herod you're also paying tithes to the temple I mean, so common people are incredibly burdened by taxation and they're already living on on the verge of of uh, not being able to survive. Right. So most people, the vast majority of, of people are living at the subsistence level and are really are really being fleeced by um, people in power. That's, by the way, the same reason why tax collectors are so hated in Jesus time is because they're Jewish people. They're your neighbors, but they're collaborators with Rome. They come around and collect taxes for Rome and usually take more than than what you owe. So there's another level of exploitation on top of it. And that's, of course, why tax collectors like Zacchaeus are hated or whatever. Um, but like, so so what's going on here? Why, why would they ask about taxes? And scholars will say it's probably because if he he can't answer right either way, because if he says, yes, you should pay taxes then he's going to alienate all of the Jewish common people who are enamored with him, right? Because they're, you know, they're suffering under Roman oppression. This is an occupation. It's like Northern France during World War II. Uh, and so if he says, yes, go ahead and, you know, collaborate with the Roman system, they're going to say, wait, wait this guy's a fraud. Like, isn't he, isn't he on our side, right? 
On the other hand, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, he appears to be flouting Roman authority, right? Like he would get himself into trouble. He could be charged with sedition uh, or treason, right? Yes, of course you have to pay the Roman tax because otherwise you are an enemy of Rome. Uh, so he can't, the, the, the idea is let's trap him. Let's, let's get him to, to stick his foot in his mouth one way or the other. Which makes it all the more amazing the way he answers, because of course he doesn't give them a one or one way or the other kind of an answer, right? It's sort of like, well, both, right? Yeah, yes, and. Um, so that's fascinating to me. That you know, I really that, that's a that's a like, how does he come up with that? Is a is an amazing question to me. Um, yeah. Do you have any other questions about this text? Is there something that comes up for you? Yeah, I guess I have a question. I'm wondering if uh, in one part it. They, they seem to ask him, like, is Caesar's law good, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Yeah. And he, it seems like, I guess my question is, is he trying to separate Caesar's laws and God's laws here? Aha. Uh-huh. Um, and so he says, give to the emperor, and then separately give to God. Yes. Uh, and so that does does it make sense that he's trying to separate Caesar's and God's laws here? Yeah, you put your finger right on the heart of the matter. Um, this is the great question. Like, what exactly is Jesus trying to say here? Um, and on the one hand, like he he sort of deftly evades the trap, right? That the that the, his opponents set for him because he he you know by by the way he speaking of education and good good uh, teaching technique he uses you know a uh, uh, piece of realia, right? He's like, look at this visual cue, right? Like he he gets he has somebody give him a, a denarius, which is the coin. Um, that represented maybe one day's labor for the average laborer. So it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty significant amount of money for the average person, but he holds it up. And of course it's stamped with the, with the emperor's image and has all kinds of accolades, you know, affirming the divine right of the, of the emperor to rule and all that. It's very clear that through Rome's currency, they, they insist on uh, influencing the way people think about power, right? The, whose power is circulating through the empire? Well, this guy, he's on the coin, right? So he, he uses this, you know, visual visual aid and says, Who's, whose head is this and whose title? And they say the emperor. So if, it, if the coin is inscribed with Caesar's identity, it belongs to him. But then by that second half of that phrase, he says, we'll give back to God the things that are God's. Well, what bears the inscription of God's name? And the people, I think, would have heard really profoundly the the Jewish affirmation that human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings bear God's image, right? Like a coin. And so if we're to return to God that which bears God's image, then that's everything. That's your whole life, right? To include your coins. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? I mean, is he saying that anything belongs to Caesar Maybe Caesar is entitled to his tax just because he has imposed his will in that regard. But that doesn't mean that he has some kind of moral authority or that he even has, you know, total sovereignty. That belongs only to God. So Jesus has kind of upheld both kind of, again, he's evaded the question about, you know, should you pay taxes to Rome? He kind of says, well, sure, if the coin has the emperor's image on it, fine, give him the coin. But what should we offer up to God then? if our whole lives bear God's mark. Anyway, there you go. I mean, I don't know. He's also required that we decide for ourselves, right? He doesn't give a clear answer. 
Uh, you decide what belongs to whom. It's a great question. Um, so one of the one of the questions that I have for this text is apart from that one, which is the most important question: what belongs to whom in the end? Right? Is is God's law uh, somehow parallel to uh, to the emperor's law? Or like, does it supersede the emperor's law and how my, my question then is how are we supposed to navigate that, uh, that complexity, right? Like there've been times I think that this passage has been interpreted simplistically, um, to like say, well, yes, we should be, we should be good. Like we should be good citizens, right? And we should pay our taxes and we should vote and we should do all the things that good citizens do, but we should also give to God what the things that are God. So we should like support our churches and and other community organizations with our time, energy and and uh treasure or whatever. So it's sort of like two two duties that you can discharge simultaneously, right? But I think it's a little bit more intertwined than that. It's sort of like h- how do you exercise your civic rights and responsibilities in a way that's consistent with your allegiance to God first, right? It's the whole question of like, how does your faith, how do your convictions inform the way that you exercise your rights and responsibilities as a citizen, which is a way bigger question than just like where your money goes. Maybe, Maybe I can ask you that question. Like in what way, if, if, giving back to God the things that are God's means, you know, living your whole life to include your political engagement uh, in line with your convictions, the convictions that maybe you have received by, you know, learning, listening and learning to, you know, the listening to Jesus your whole life and learning the, the, the sort of the values of the kingdom of God. How, how does that, how does that like influence the way that you live your public life? Can you, can you kind of put your finger on that in any ways? Um, I think coming back to something I, I said earlier, that it seems like vocation is important there, right? Bingo. That if, if you feel that God is giving you a mission to work on in your public life, yes, whether that's, you know, standing up in front of a class or being a pastor or, you know, whatever else your vocation might be, then that is giving back to God what God has given to you, Amen. whatever, whatever talent you have. So, you know, I, I don't, I guess I don't teach to pay my taxes. I, I would say that I teach because I think it's good and I think it's a gift to others. And I like, you know, sharing knowledge. Uh, and I, I like when, when people, you know, can, can join my team. And yeah. we're on the same page. Yeah, wonderful. So, um, so uh, I think you know, engaging in a way that that educates and that uh, brings knowledge and the ability to work together in the world. I think that's how uh, I can give back what I've been given. I love that. Well, and. Th- the way that you exercise that vocation is 
going to that's parallel to the way that you exercise other vocations like as if as you've mentioned as a family member right as a as a friend as a citizen uh all of those are sort of informed by an overarching sense of the value of your life as it is given to you by god i love that that's really beautiful wonderful that's great hey what about that last question um in some ways in some ways it's the most difficult because it asks us to sort of take like take the word and sort of apply it personally to our lives and we've we've kind of sort of leaned into that already uh in our conversation but but if the word is living and active if if scripture kind of speaks truth into our lives in a way that's supposed to you know sustain us and maybe change us um what are you taking from this particular scripture for this day uh i think first uh to to be careful in your in your public life mm-hmm. and the way that you you choose to speak up and speak out mm-hmm. and and not be trapped if you see a trap uh-huh. um yeah but also uh to be be proud and be clear when when something is is wrong or you you only see it one way jesus sees very clearly that what's god's is god's and um I think you know he he doesn't he doesn't shy away from that, but he does avoid the Pharisees' question. So yeah, uh, and he affirms he goes back and affirms the central conviction that that like motivates his ministry, which is that everything belongs to God. God has a dream for the world, and we're all part of making it come true. I love that. Yeah. So so when I go out in the world, you know I'm going to be be proud and be clear about what I value. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm sure there's going to be people out there who don't maybe don't like what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be trapped by them and going to inf- affirm my values instead. Affirm the value that I see in in working together and um, you know, social justice and building teams of equal people. So. Yeah, wonderful. I love that. That's a good. That's a good application. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I immediately thought this time when I read this scripture, I immediately thought of a Psalm verse that I love. It's Psalm 24, the very first verse of Psalm 24. And the psalmist sings, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. This beautiful affirmation of God's kind of benevolent sovereignty over all that is, um, even given all the complexity of that, right? The, the, our different, our, our different allegiances and our uh, divided responsibilities, um, but that somehow that's all wrapped up in God's intentions for our common life. And um, as I was reading this week in preparation to preach, uh, there was a one interpretation that really stood out to me, uh, and it's it's the these are words from Desmond Tutu, who of course engaged really intentionally in the political process right he he was he's yeah. known because of his critical role in chairing the truth and reconciliation commission in the aftermath of apartheid in south africa which of course was an incredibly painful and yet necessary and valuable process to heal from that really horrible chapter in that nation's life and so he has something i think he has something worthwhile to say about political engagement and sort of this this question of of devoting one's whole life to God's project. 
And he writes, there is nowhere that the writ of God does not run for everything belongs to God. That's basically like a summary of Psalm 24. But then he goes on to say that any structure that is oppressive, quote, makes us less than God intends us to be. I love that, that that we engage for the we engage the political process for the life of the world according to God's dream and we can we can find we can find clues as to what that looks like all throughout scripture but um you know whether you look at the the beatitudes uh or uh you look at the early christian community and the way that they tried to live together uh to you know promote abundant life for every member of the body uh He's really, he's reflecting that. Any structure that is oppressive, quote, makes us less than God intends us to be. And that's why, that's why we speak out and speak up, as you've said. That that's why we, uh, that's why, why we uh, use our gifts for the common good, right? That's the other, the other language I think that comes up um, around the, the question of the body of Christ and how do we, how do we apply our gifts, uh, for the sake of the common good, so that has me that has me thinking about like in what ways does our current arrangement, uh, our public arrangement, the configuration of our politics, in what ways does it promote like thriving, abundant life for for people, say within the United States, and in what ways does it kind of stunt people's potential? Like in what ways are people prevented from living full lives? Uh, and in what ways can I then uh, apply my gifts and my passions in order to to sort of re- help realize God's dream for the world? That's that's really where where I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think clearly we've seen uh, an expression of of pain um, because of uh, the the racial and social divides in our country, um, but I think there is. Uh, a big opportunity for people to to speak out with their with their own talents, whatever those are. Um, hopefully, for now, we have an opportunity for for equality and to to show uh, what the what the writ of God can give us. Yes, yes, wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, I thought maybe if, if you're okay, I thought the only other thing I wanted to share with you this, this time around was, um, something from Luther. I figure we haven't, I don't always give credit to Luther for his ideas, but, uh, since, you know, our, our tradition bears his name, uh, I wondered if maybe I would share with, with you something from temporal authority and the extent to which it should be obeyed, which was a a treatise from 1523, um, where, where Luther starts to explore what it means to relate to temporal authority or to secular authority. And he really insists that uh, Christian people should uh, help, uh, assist, and support, uh, do, does all, we, that we do all we can, because this is a quote, we do all we can to assist the governing authority that it may continue to function and be held in honor, uh, which is kind of an amazing thing to think about. Uh, but he's also not naive about how uh, the the expectations that God places on those who ex- exercise power. So he he says some really beautiful things about what it means to exercise power. And I think in an election season, this might be some important some important words for us to remember. 
first of all, by the way, I thought it was hilarious. This is totally in, in Lutheran fashion. He, he does say at first, he says, you must know that since the beginning of the world, a wise prince is a mighty rare bird and an upright prince even rarer. They, that is those who exercise power, are generally the biggest fools or the worst scoundrels on earth. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, good. All right, so we can just um, remember that as we go into the election season. But more importantly, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everybody has a different idea of who is a who is a big a big a, the biggest fool and uh, the worst scoundrel. But uh, you know, the, the more importantly, he kind of goes goes out of his way to describe what maybe a faithful governor or, or a faithful uh, person who exercises power looks like, and he writes the following. The prince must give consideration and attention to his subjects, forgive the gendered language, and really devote himself to it. This he does when he directs his every thought to making himself useful and beneficial to them. When instead of thinking the land and people belong to me, I will do what best pleases me, he thinks rather, I belong to the land and the people. I shall do what is useful and good for them. In such manner, should a prince in his heart empty himself of his power and authority and take unto himself the needs of his subjects, dealing with them as though they were his own needs. I don't know about you, but that's pretty breathtaking to me. Luther's understanding of the faithful um, governing authority. I don't know. That, that, that's really all I want from my leaders uh, in the secular society is, is someone who wields power in order to uphold the needs of common people. Yeah, uh, that that does seem like a, a rare breed of bird. <laughs> yeah, I think Luther is right in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> but I I don't think that makes it impossible. No, for, for those sorts of people to be found. No, and uh, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable. Yeah, absolutely. We should definitely have high standards for our leadership because the you know every people's lives are on the line. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it the the power that we invest in those leaders makes it possible for them to to build an equal society. That's we right. just have to find the right bird. Thank you. I love that. Good application. Nicely done. Jacob Woodbury is my guest for episode thirty one of Together in the Word on Pioneer and Third. I treasure your time. Thanks for, for carving out a little bit of time for us. Thanks, Nate. I was happy to speak to you. And thank you to you all. Until next week.